Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. It was when you came on your official visit, they played like the old school movie with the four horsemen and uh, the old school Notre Dame, and you got the, and there's a... Now that's a follow-up question, Eric Hansen. That's a heck of a follow-up question right there. If you can be physical, and if you can take the breath out of somebody by hitting them, man, it don't matter how many yards or, or what the offense is or what the schemes are, that, that'll always be the same. But I still think there's a place for Notre Dame and the ideals of Notre Dame football in the wide, broad scope of the sport right now. Uh, Eric, I'm hoping I don't run into you in South Bend because you'll probably cost me around a drink. From the South Bend Tribune and ND Insider, this is the Pot of Gold Podcast with Tyler James and Eric Hansen. Welcome, everybody, to another edition of Pot of Gold and ND Insider Podcast. I'm Tyler James, and I'm joined once again by the one and only Eric Hansen. Together, we cover Notre Dame football for ND Insider and the South Bend Tribune. The Irish actually did it. Notre Dame took down number one Clemson in a double overtime thriller Saturday night. It will be certainly a game remembered for a long time, but that memory memory will be influenced by how the Irish finished this season, I, I, I bet. So next up on the to-do list for Notre Dame is a road game at Boston College on Saturday against former Irish quarterback Phil Dracovic. So to talk all things Irish and quarterback play, we invited former Irish quarterback Malik Zaire back onto the podcast. Malik is doing work as a college football analyst for CBS Sports, and he launched a podcast earlier this year called On the Other Hand with Malik Zaire. Malik, Zaire. Malik thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, man. This is always great to be back talking about Irish football. You know, we love it. Malik, just to start, what sort of impressed you the most about Notre Dame's victory on Saturday? I just, I'm, I'm just really impressed with Ian. I think he had the most exciting uh, part of the game uh, from his play from beginning to end. I mean, yeah, it gave us heart attacks and and and, and it gave us the hero, uh, the heroism at the end. Um, and it, I really believe that was the biggest game of his career. Uh, he he really stepped up to the plate, and um, you know, it was good to have a huge victory like that for us to um, not really have good success. Uh, this this last you know few couple decades it feels like against uh you know top five teams so uh, I think this was good for everybody involved um you know Coach Kelly can keep his extension no I'm just playing <laughs> 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 uh, but, uh, it was really good for us to pull it off so if I'm remembering right Malik you and Ian overlapped one season at Notre Dame and, and I'm wondering you know what were your impressions of him coming in I mean. Did you think, well, this guy's going to be successful? Did you really not know? What what was kind of your early thoughts about him? Yeah, um, yeah, Ian and I was roommates like my last year in uh, 2016. And um, <laughs> when he came in, I was like, yeah, this must be the new wave of quarterbacks because I'm looking at who we got right now. I'm like, Ian is not like any of us on the roster. So um, <laughs> I knew things was heading in a different direction for the program, but um, you know, Ian was great, man. He was a calm, cool, collected dude. 
uh, he had a girlfriend at the time. I don't think he wants to talk about that, but he had a girlfriend at the time from back home that he was all in love with when uh, when I was spending time with him. So, uh, you know, he grew up. You know, I don't know if he still has that girlfriend, but he grew up uh, 27, 28 games later, man, and he's doing his thing, and I'm so proud of him. Did you, I, I guess going into this Clemson game, did you think Ian Book could do that or were you, did you, or were you in the camp of maybe questioning whether or not he could come through in a moment like that? I just really think it just came down to just looking at how we are as a team. I mean, you know, um, through the history, we just haven't had great success against teams that we feel like we should have been, uh, could have beat. You know, even going back to when I played, you know, we lost to Ohio State at a time where we had everybody hurt, but you know, that's still a, a, a game that we could have really put the the, uh, the deal on. Uh, we lost to Florida State when they had Jameis, and we should have won that. You know, a lot of games where we should have won, even the Clemson game uh, when the, both Deshauns was playing. So um, all those things are just obviously the history of what we've been through. So, yeah, there's a little doubt. Um, you know, Ian hadn't had a big win like that in his career to that point either. So, uh of course, the, the the chips were stacked amongst him, but you know he he was able to come through, and I think it only testifies to his his legacy that uh, is going to be sealed at Notre Dame. Malik, I can't remember. Were you able to travel to that Clemson game in '15? Were you well enough to get on a plane by then? Yeah, I was down there. Okay, so when you First of all, what were your memories that your takeaways from that 2015 game? And do you feel like the talent is similar at Clemson now than it was in 2015? Uh, I don't, I mean, I'm obviously say no, but, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, those are two giants that was playing at the time. I mean, we were stacked how we were. We were no less qualified to be a national championship team than Clemson was in 2015, um, I think it's no different than this year. But, you know, the guys we had and the guys they had, I mean, you know, we got guys playing in the league right now mm-hmm. that are making the most money in the league that was playing in that game alone. So, right. um, you know, obviously from the results of where we both are, those two teams are now compared to where those teams can potentially be, I would have to say we were in a better position from a talent-wise, game-to-game. But, you know, you never know. I mean, Chase Claypool is balling out. So, uh, for guys like that to – from where he started, I mean, look at where he came in and where who we already had and what they were already doing. You just – you never know the type of uh, result that you'll have out of it. Speaking of talent, Malik, what did you think of the freshman quarterback, DJ Uyunglele? What, how impressed were you by – uh, how he played and how different of a game do you think it would have been if Trevor Lawrence played? Yeah, I uh, I know DJ very well. I trained with DJ and and uh, helped DJ a lot when back when he was in seventh grade. So I knew he was going to be legit. Um, and you know, I think him being as good as he was in the game just shows that it's going he's going to be even better moving forward. And for us to beat, I mean, an all star, five star freshman like DJ, I mean. Yeah, that's good, but he's still a true freshman. So it's not like, you know, um, we played Trevor where, you know, I hope we get a chance to play him again in the ACC championship. Um, that would be, I think, the, the the truest test to if we can really, you know, say we're 
champions. Not that we're not because we already beat them, but uh, <laughs> it's not a 36-game win streak is, is pretty huge. But, you know, with just the hype Trevor has alone, um, I think adds a different dynamic to a game where, you know, there were times in the game where I'm like, our secondary at any point could let it off. And they can score at any moment. I mean, he scored in a three-play drive like it was nothing. And with uh, Trevor Lawrence back there, I know there's a higher percentage and, and chances of balls going down the field. So with with that playing into it, I, I hope that is gearing up for a great ACC championship game. And uh, with us winning this first one, it gives us a lot of confidence. Um, I believe DJ is going to be fine, and he's going to win a lot of games. <laughs> and he's going to be everything everybody thinks he will be. Uh, as long as he's healthy. But um, for us to beat him, and especially Coach Kelly get that win uh, psychologically over Dabo, I think that's a that's a good indicator of giving us some confidence going into that next game. Malik, you know, Notre Dame has to play up at Boston College this week, and people have been talking about this matchup, not as much as Clemson, but – the quarterback matchup since Phil Jakovic was at Notre Dame. And I'm wondering when you transferred to Florida, was there part of you that year that said, I wish there was a way for us to play Notre Dame this year? Yeah. So on my exit meeting, I wanted, I told Coach Kelly I was going to North Carolina because we played, they had played that year. And because uh, I really wanted to play Coach Kelly, you know, I was like, I'm just going to beat you, like, forget you. But, um, <laughs> You know, he had he at first was obviously like, oh, I don't want you to go there, but then, you know, was, he he let me he ended up saying I can go there or whatever. And um so I was really interested in possibly going and, and playing, but then I was like, you know, I wanted to take a chance to play in the SEC just for the experience, you know, and just to get an opportunity. I mean, who who else in the world gets a chance to play at Notre Dame and then play in the SEC? I mean, you know, it's not to me we get to do that. So um I ended up doing that transition and it was, uh, it was cool. So for Phil, I mean, I know personally, uh, uh, just from being in that quarterback room, I know that he, he's excited about this game and, and just for the fact, like anybody else would assume that he probably feels like he should have been playing at some point or at least got some more time or whatever the case may be. So, you know, that adds a natural excitement to the game that I think everybody wants to see. I think feels great. I think because he had a great game at Clemson, you saw the potential and what he could do. And, you know, he's definitely not going to be afraid. So I think that's an important thing for us to realize that he's not going to be afraid and he will, uh, regardless of the gamesmanship, know things about our defense that, you know, other quarterbacks might not know. So um, hopefully we don't last too long on that. I'm curious, just to follow up, you know, I think I would have felt the same way you did. I'd want to show Brian Kelly what he was missing. But I'm wondering, in the time, now that some time has passed, did you guys ever kind of, I don't want to say make peace, but do you kind of see him differently than you did after you tra- right after you transferred? No, but, oh. I mean, that's Coach Kelly, you know. I don't, okay. <laughs> that's good. I mean, that's, you know, that's, I think that's just – who he is. I don't expect him to ever be a, you know, talk it out kind of guy. Okay. That's not who he is, but because he's like that, I mean, he's still doing what he's, he's doing how he's doing. So um, that's just leave it where it is. Sure. 
Malik, you, you mentioned, Phil, maybe knowing some things about Notre Dame's defense. What, what kind of advantages do you think that could give him? And is there a chance that maybe that doesn't matter that much, given that maybe he didn't play uh, a lot with the varsity against the starting defense when he was here at Notre Dame? Well, whenever you know anything about any information of somewhere where you've been around for a long time, there's not one, there's not much you're going to change that different from on just based on the game. So he already knows what, who's good and who's not, who can do what, who can't just from observing and being around the guys. Now, him executing is obviously the whole decision and deciding factor, but that doesn't mean he doesn't know what's going on. So sure. I don't think it's going to be a, a thing where they're going to be tricking him a lot. I have a lot of faith in the defensive coordinator and Lee. I think he's, I think he's really, really good, but um, it's just going to come down to execution for Phil, which would make his process of breaking down film a lot easier because he knows what he's going against. Mm -hmm. And I think he's just got to be able to be in sync with the guys around him to, to not fall into the, the hype of we're playing Notre Dame because, you know, um, that can be a mystique that some guys fall into. But, uh, you know, the chips are – I think the chips are in Phil's hands, honestly. I think he has um, the ability to beat Notre Dame. So, you know, anybody that has, that has a uh, recruited by Notre Dame and goes there obviously has the ability to play amongst them. So he has the ability. So it'll be an interesting dynamic to see. You know, um, Malik, Chip Long came in after you had left and then he got fired just before the bowl game last year. Did did you follow the dynamic of him? Like your former teammates, did any of them give you feedback on what they thought about Chip Long and if they felt like there was a problem with the way he coached people? Yeah, I mean, he wasn't a Sanford and he wasn't on the floor. He um, wasn't a Denbrock. So, you know, his, people felt about him how people felt about Van Gorder on the defense. Okay. So um, you're going to have the players that give you their personal experiences with the coach one-on-one -on -one and how he did him. And it's halfway funny, but halfway, you know, messed up or whatever they uh, take from it. But um, just like how they felt about Van Gorder with some of the guys and how they didn't like his coaching style is the same way you know, they felt with Coach Long is just, uh, you know, on the offensive side of the ball, you're not used to seeing that type of style because everybody is kind of just um, doing doing the thing under Coach Kelly. So um, uh, that personality wasn't the type that uh, fit amongst them, and, and it showed Coach Kelly's not afraid to to make uh, adjustments. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Tommy Reese replaced Chip Long as offensive coordinator. What have, what have you thought of how he's done as a play caller in his first year as the offensive coordinator at Notre Dame? Yeah, I think um, Coach Kelly, that was just his, like, long-lost brother that he never had or, like, <laughs> son that he always wanted is in Tommy Reese, even when he was playing. So um, I think Coach Kelly finally got the confidence just let somebody do it. Um and the only person that was able was Tommy. So uh, Tommy being able to be and, – and I think it's because Tommy knew the issues. You know, Tommy knew the issues that we were struggling with from a systematic standpoint, and he made those adjustments in the play calling accordingly. He didn't do the same stuff we always do in big games because not only was he in those same big games at one point, 
he he's smart enough to know what he should have called in those moments. And I think it showed the entire game. We actually had a team on their toes the entire game. We didn't look like we did. I mean, it was a point where we ran out of a couple calls, but I mean, we were able to bounce back and and keep it competitive. And, and we never felt like we didn't know what we were calling. So um, Tommy did a great job since he's been there. And I think in combination with his relationship with Ian is the next step and maybe even the missing piece of what we needed to make that, that jump to an actual championship run. Blake, you know, I know that um, a lot of times quarterback rooms are pretty close. They're also very competitive. I'm wondering with, I mean, again, time has passed now. Have you, do you have a relationship with Everett? Do you ever talk to him? Do you ever talk to Deshaun? Uh. No, I, I mean, I'm still trying to find Ev. I don't know where Ev's at. Um, <laughs> you know, Ev's always a private guy. Um, and Deshaun, you know, Deshaun's the total opposite. Deshaun's a total Hollywood guy. So, um, yeah, I mean, I feel like I just lay in the middle. So, uh, <laughs> I try. I mean, we had a, a group text today. Coach Sanford reached out to the Red Army. I mean, think about that group. Me, Deshaun, Brandon, Ian, Gummy, Nolan, uh, so we have pretty special guys in that group and to see them flourishing is, uh, you know, it's pretty cool. But, uh, no, I don't, I wish I could talk to Ev. I, if somebody knows where Ev's at, you know, I'd love to talk to him. And uh, Deshaun, I mean, you know, you know where Deshaun's at, but if you can reach him, then, hey, then you can reach him. If not, then I get point. <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you what, I miss having you around. I don't think that there was ever a quarterback at Notre Dame that as gives you the unvarnished truth like you do, I bet that helps you in in being a good analyst on CBS. <laughs> well, thanks, man. I think uh, you know, just going through what you go through, you got to tell the truth because I think a lot of times uh, there's one thing to keep certain things in house, but then there's another thing to be righteous. You just I just believe in truth and righteousness. So you can't just be out here doing people any type of way and then trying to mask it under. We want to keep it in house because, you know, that's not going to give us success as an organization like we want to be. So, um, you know, there's a fine line. Like I'm not out here just saying anything, but uh, I think there is truth to everything that when you stick to the right questions, you can find what you want and, you know, not everybody's going to like it, but, who cares? <laughs> Malik, it's uh, been an interesting year for anyone trying to do any work in media or sports media. Um, and I know you, you've been doing a number of different things. I mentioned your podcast and your work with CBS Sports. I think you're out at Colorado State recently. What have you been do, doing uh, during this uh, crazy year of 2020? Uh, just a lot of self-reparation, man. I think um, if any point in, in our adult life or in my adult life, I had had a chance to just not do something else. You know, we're so used to being on the schedule, chasing somebody else for a story, chasing somebody else to do something. So uh, a lot of time spent just reflecting on myself. I mean, I grew up my hair a little bit. That's pretty cool. I've never had my hair this long. So um, doing a lot of reading and just introspection and, and finding out what's really real. I think that's important for a lot of people at this day and age and at this time to cut out a lot of the extra stuff that that has been clouding a lot of people's judgment on things. So um, 
once I was able to do that, man, I feel a lot better about my journey. I, I know there's been a lot of things econ economically where people haven't been in the same place they're used to. But when you focus on yourself, it really don't matter because it's going to find its way as long as you focused on you and time's going to pass as long as you stay focused. But if, if you focused on things that don't matter, things that you can't control, then, you know, you, you, you're your own worst enemy. Tell us about Lefty Inc. What's that all about and how's that project going? Uh, we're all about service, man. We want to be able to provide the power back to the individual. A lot of times and in a lot of companies, a lot of taking. You know, I think the only true way of adding value is to add service and to give information that's going to help people. A lot of times and most people's problems, they don't know nothing and they're not willing to to research and to do the things needed to get anywhere. So it's important to provide information back and help and services where they can power themselves as opposed to me feeding you something to come back all the time. So it's the same as like me teaching you how to build a house instead of me coming back every day to build it myself. So those are the, the, the ideology behind it. And then, you know, we do things from lending perspectives to training, to counseling, to, uh, you know, creating projects in, in, in my hand and, and um, connecting projects and, and project design. So, you know, it's really just a service opportunity to be able to do more than just be in the football world. Well, I hope you're still doing uh, impressions because you were incredible, <laughs> you and Jay Hayes doing that. And I hope you're going to be able to get back to Kettering for at least one of the holidays here. Yeah, it's so funny because uh, we're actually in the state semi-playoffs of uh, my high school, and our head coach just got COVID, so he can't even go to the game. Oh, no. What a what a movie story that is. So, Coach Ed Domsites, he's been my coach. He's been there for a long time. He's a really yeah. good, really good, successful coach, and I know he's kicking himself for missing this game due to the craziness and what we call COVID, so – Hopefully we can win that game for him and then he can come back for the finals. Well, it's, it, it, at least they're able to still play. I know some teams have had it where they their team gets infected and then the, the season just ends because the team had COVID and they can't, they can't move on. That would just be a terrible way to end your, end your season. Yeah, it's just super interesting, you know, with COVID being around and how you can do some things and some things you can. It's just kind of like, you know, what, what do you believe in? <laughs> well, well, I'll assure you, I did not storm the field Saturday when I was at the stadium. I stayed in the front. <laughs> yeah, it's like, well, I mean, you know, is are we going to cancel the season because of that, or is it okay? <laughs> like COVID, like for the Irish, I think COVID was for the Irish that night. It takes <laughs> everybody there, and it's going to keep us moving forward. All right, Malik, that's all we got for you. We really appreciate you taking time to catch up with us and, and share your insight once again. Thanks for calling, man. I appreciate you anytime, guys. We'll get back to the podcast in a moment, but first a word from Coors Light. These days, it seems like life forces us to be on all the time, but every now and then it's important to stop and reset. That's when you reach for a Coors Light. It's mountain cold refreshment made to chill. There's only one beer out there that's literally made to chill, and that's Coors Light. So make sure your refrigerator is stocked with Coors Light when the Fighting Irish are playing or when you're watching any game. Coors Light is the official beer of watching any sport or any team. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's literally made to chill. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies, perfect for a moment to unwind, like when the work is done and the game is on. 
So when life forces are go, 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 take a moment to chill with the Coors Light. Have it delivered straight to your door at get.coorslight.com. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Now it's time for Place Your Bets. How much you want to make a bet I can throw a football over the mountains? This is our segment dedicated to the degenerates. Let's make some prop bets for Notre Dame Boston College. First one I have for us, Eric, is over under 225 passing yards for Phil Dracovic. Well, the last three games he's been under that. Um, he's he's had a couple games where he's been in the mid-300s. I, I think Notre Dame is going to try to get Phil in third and long, so I think they're going to kind of load up against the run similar they did to Boston College. So I think Boston College is going to get its yards through the air, and I do think Phil will get over 225. Yeah, I'm going over as well. I think they're going to be sort of throwing all day because that's basically their only recourse of action. So I, I do think that he, he will be able to get over 225 passing yards. Next question is, will Zay Flowers catch a touchdown pass? I like him a lot. I like their receivers a lot. I, I actually – you know, they have a really good tight end. They have, I like C.J. Lewis and Zay Flowers. Flowers is the guy with the most touchdowns. He's had at least one touchdown in half their games. I'm going to say yes. I mean, he's going to be he's going to be cranking it deep to Zay Flowers because he's going to want to show Notre Dame that they made a mistake. Yeah, I, I I would be the most concerned about Zay Flowers as 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 the Notre Dame defense, but I also think that might be why they maybe will prevent him from doing that because I think if that's the, if there's one guy on Boston College's offense that I, you want to single out, obviously other than the quarterback, it, it, to me it's Zay Flowers. So I think Clark Lee will come up with some sort of game plan to try to make someone else beat them, and that will allow them to keep him out of the end zone. Though I think that he's going to get the ball plenty of times, but it may have to be more on some short passing routes than, than uh, beating Notre Dame deep. Next one I have for us is over under 200 rushing yards for Notre Dame. That one was kind of tricky because uh, Virginia Tech just gashed them for 350. But in, in Boston College's last three games, it's been 106, 106, 52 given up in the rushing game. And one of those 106s was Clemson. Um. But I think Notre Dame's offensive line and Kyron Williams are just too good to hold down. You know, Notre Dame has been pretty consistent over 200 other than the Pitt game and the Duke game. Um, and I kind of throw out the Duke game as an outlier. Pitt was legitimate. They held Notre Dame down. I just don't think Boston College has the personnel, so I'm going with over 200. Yeah, I'm going over as well. I think Boston College's run defense is decent, like you mentioned, but – I, I just think Notre Dame's going to be able to power through that and, and overcome any obstacles there. So I think Notre Dame will be able to run. And I think Ian Book will contribute to that too with a lot of scrambles as well and, and getting some getting some yardage, some easy yardage uh, uh, on some dropbacks. Next one is over under two and a half sacks for Notre Dame. Oh, I read it as three and a half sacks. I actually went over on that. <laughs> uh, Boston College um, – has given up a lot of sacks, although not as much lately. Um, they've they've been a little bit better other than the Clemson game, their last four games. Boy, they were giving them up left and right. 
But I think Phil is going to put himself – he holds on to the ball a long time sometimes. Yeah. And so – and I think he's going to hold on to it longer against Notre Dame just to kind of – because he wants to – he wants to show off that home run, you know, that long arm. And uh, so I think Notre Dame will be able to get him. Their pass rush is funny because it's not real consistent. They kind of get them in bunches. Yeah. I mean, in that Clemson game, it wasn't until the second overtime right, they right, got right. one, and then it was two plays in a row. So, Yeah, I, I, Boston College's offensive line isn't good, which is kind of – doesn't make a lot of sense to me that they, they the, the drop-off has sort of been pretty significant where their offensive line have been pretty, pretty solid the previous years. Um, and I, I do think Notre Dame's going to be able to hit the over there. I agree with you that Phil holds on to the ball a little bit too long. Um, I, I think it's funny because I think a lot of Notre Dame fans that are have grown had grown tired of Ian Book, they'll, they'll watch Phil play and like they're like, see, that's what it looks like when you stand there in the pocket. But he he does that a little bit too much. I think he has the he has the flaw of holding on to it too much, where Ian has the flaw of maybe uh, dancing around and running too early at times. So I think the the perfect situation is somewhere in the in, in the middle between those two. Um, but I think because Phil is like that, and I think Notre Dame's defensive line will be able to get after Boston College that they will have more than two and a half sacks. Next one, over under four and a half catches for Michael Mayer. I'm going to go under. I, You know, he's Notre Dame's leading receiver. Um, I think there's going to be a different dynamic in terms of what's open to them in the field, although, boy, I wouldn't want to bet against him, but I guess I am. I don't think he's going to have a lot less than four and a half catches. I just think there's going to be other people. I think they're going to try to take him away. I don't know that they're going to have success and they're going to take their chances with the wide receivers. I think the wide receivers will have more opportunities. I'm going to go with over. I I just think he has become a bit of a security blanket for Ian book. Um, And I think, Notre Dame isn't afraid to sort of dial up some plays for him, whether it's just some short routes and get him the ball and let him run after it. And a lot of those can sometimes come on third down where they need 12 yards and they're going to throw it seven and hope Michael Mayer can get the last five um, after the catch. And so I, I think um, there will be some opportunities for him there that, and I don't see that those necessarily going away. I don't know that he's going to get up to like eight catches or anything, but I think he'll be able to just get slightly over four and a half catches. And the last one, a final score prediction. Um, you know, that last year's game was an absolute rout. Um, I think <laughs> that Phil definitely elevates Boston College. I think they were picked to finish 13th out of the 15 teams in the preseason poll, and they're going to do much better than that and are doing much better than that. But I still think Notre Dame is focused enough. They're the talent gap is large at a lot of positions. So I'm going to go Notre Dame 34, Boston College 17. Well, we have a pretty similar score prediction. I think I, I think Notre Dame has a chance to score more points. I'm just a little uneasy about maybe there will be a, a slow start for a change and, and, and having to uh, kind of work out the kinks a little bit after after – last week not that not that there's gonna be a lack of a focus I just think maybe the execution won't be as sharp right out the gate as it has been um so I think this could be close early but I do think Notre Dame will pull away and win 31 to 17. all right now it's time for questions just tell me when you guys are we done with USC 
Everybody's that. You guys are kidding me. That's all you want to talk about. All right, let's go. You can submit questions to us on Twitter before each podcast. I'm at T James NDI and Eric's at E Hanson NDI. First one I have for us, Eric, is from Samuel Ramirez at Samuel 27RC. Was the success that DJ Uyunga Lale had against the ND secondary because of his cannon arm, or do the defensive backs have to be better? Well, let me start with number one, he's really, really good. He's a very talented player and played very well in a big game. Number two, and this wasn't one of the multiple choices, is that um, Notre Dame constructed its defense to smother Travis Etienne, and they were willing to give up some things in the passing game, meaning they were putting some pressure on their corners on first and second down. And, and the point of it was to get in, get him into third and longs. And again, you know, you, it, it worked, you know, uh, Clemson was four 15 on third down. Notre Dame was 10 of 19. And so do the defensive backs have to play better? E- yeah. And I, I guess that they will, but this is the way that the defense was constructed for this game. Uh, so I think, it was, I mean, there's people that think DJ is a top 10 quarterback nationally now. Um, and we'll find out, I guess, next year because I think Trevor Lawrence is coming back their next game. So we're not going to see a whole lot of him except in mop up. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to imagine a lot of places that DJ wouldn't be starting right now as a freshman, uh, other than a place like Clemson that has, has someone as talented as Trevor Lawrence ahead of them. Um, I think what DJ did was put a lot of pressure on the secondary because there weren't parts of the field that he couldn't throw the ball to. He could, he could throw it wherever he wanted to, whenever he wanted to. Um, and so that, that put pressure on the secondary. Um, so I, it's, it's a combination of both. I mean, the fact that Tariq Bracey was essentially benched early in the game tells you that he wasn't necessarily playing up to his standard. Um, so Notre Dame expects better. Um, and so when you're having to rely on a freshman cornerback and Clarence Lewis instead of Tariq Bracey, um, you're going to have some, have some ups and downs. And uh, so I think that there's room for improvement for the, for the Notre Dame secondary. Um, but I also, I agree with you that the game plan was to, to, to make sure that Travis Etienne didn't beat Notre Dame and sort of live with the consequences of what that left. And Notre Dame secondary just had some opportunities to make better plays on the ball and, and they just didn't do it. Um, and so you, you're going to need to see some improvement there moving forward. Next one is from Brent Leonard at Burt2834. Thoughts on Michael Mayer having the ability to bounce back after two big mistakes early to help win the game. Very impressive for a true freshman. I was impressed, and Brian Kelly was impressed. He was actually asked about this on Monday, and he mentioned that he just came in with a maturity and kind of mental toughness that you don't see with a lot of freshmen. He also mentioned – you know, that Notre Dame does the performance coaching with Dr. Amber Selking and what little he's been able to pull in since, you know, that since they've been there in June, he's responded very well to that. So I, I think, uh, you know, hats off to him for handling those kind of frustrations and mistakes without letting it kind of explode. Yeah. I mean, fortunately for him, it ended up being a, like a high scoring game. And so, Notre Dame's having to settle for field goals a couple times um, were, were big, big errors. 
um, and they were the result of him having a false start and a drop touchdown. Um, but Notre Dame was over to overcome them, and he, it didn't seem to affect his play. He seemed to continue to play confident um, and, and was aggressive and wasn't shying away from the, from the moment, even though he came up uh, in the wrong way a couple of times. So, yeah, it was impressive to do that. Um, and, and impressive that the Notre Dame coaching staff had the confidence in him to, to stick with him and not say, hey, we got other talented tight ends. Let's lean on Brock Wright and Tommy Tremble more. Um, but they know how good Michael Mayer is, and they, they felt that he could handle the bouncing back from that, and they were correct. Next question is from Mike Sheehy at Mike 70 There was discussion before and during the game about stealing signals. Might have impacted Brent Venable's defensive game plan. Can you briefly summarize what it means to steal signals did Notre Dame game plan against it, and do you feel it made a difference in the game? In general terms, teams signal plays, generally signal plays in from the sidelines. Either they hold up big signs, a bunch of different signs, or they have like three players doing hand signals, different hand signals, and that's to try to kind of keep it coded as you send – plays into the game. The weirdest thing that I've seen this year was Pittsburgh where their quarterback ran over to the sideline to get the play every, which must've worn him out at some point. Um, But Clemson has a reputation for being able to decode people's signals. And so apparently this was Tommy Reese's idea. He came up with doing wristbands, having the plays on wristbands and then huddling. And, and it did work. You know, they were able to keep Clemson from being able to decode what they were doing. And Notre Dame was able to play slow. They were able to, you know, pick up the tempo a couple of times when they wanted to. And I do think it, it helped in the outcome of the game. I mean, who knows if they would have been able to, decode what Notre Dame was trying to send in, but I think there was a confidence that this was a good way to do things. And Brian Kelly mentioned if they play Clemson again, they will do the same thing with the wristbands. Yeah. Notre Dame could have sort of opted to change up their signals like throughout the game. Um, They usually have multiple quarterbacks that are signaling in the plays and only one of them is actually signaling in the play. The other two are just dummy signals. Um, But if you change up your signals during the game, you, you risk the chance of messing up your own signals and not everyone being on the same page. Um, and so the huddling option makes a lot of sense. Um, I think it uh, was something that Notre Dame certainly game planned, uh, knowing that Clemson ha- had that reputation. Um, and if Clemson is as good as it, as it seems that they are, um, Clemson was probably going to be able to decipher what signals Notre Dame was throwing in uh, throughout the game. So that's why the offense was huddling. Um, and that, I mean, that's a huge, it's a huge advantage you're taking away from a defense if they don't know what plays you're calling. Um, and if, even if it's just certain aspects, if they don't know the full play, but they say if there's one part of the signal that they're getting an understanding for, even if it's an understanding of, okay, they're definitely passing or they're definitely running, that, that can be a huge difference. And so it forces the defense to to react rather than, sort of anticipate what's coming um, and that that's certainly harder and, and puts more pressure on the defense and I would imagine sort of you saw how Clemson's defense didn't necessarily play very well at the beginning of the game Notre Dame was able to 
to move the ball sort of at will until it got to the red zone. Um, and I, I would have to think that that had something to do with Clemson not necessarily knowing what, what Notre Dame was coming coming with against them. Um, and then Clemson seemed to figure something out sort of in this early in the second half, but um, Notre Dame was sort of able to counteract that as well. Next question is from at Irishfan102. Greater advantage, Phil, Phil Dracovic's knowledge of Notre Dame's defense and personnel or Clark Lee's knowledge of Phil's weaknesses and tendencies? Um, you know, Malik had an interesting answer to it. I, I think the one thing that, and Brian kind of brought this up Monday, Brian Kelly, is he's in a different offense. So you're, you're seeing him play kind of in a different context. I mean, certainly you probably know what he doesn't do well in general terms and so forth. As far as um, figuring out Notre Dame's defense and giving them information, I, yeah, I, I think it, it would be helpful. But again, you know, the personnel is a little bit different. I guess there's, there's a lot of the same people. And Clark Lee's going to have a game plan specific for Boston College's offense. So I'm not sure that I, – I, I agree with Malik to a certain point that any inside information you have is valuable. Right. I just don't think it's enough to tip the scales one way or another. Yeah, and I, I, I was sort of of that thinking as well too. I, I'm not sure like how much – like what does Phil know about the defense that couldn't be picked up by studying – the film. So, so maybe that, right. Right. Maybe you, you that, maybe the study, if maybe it was that, an opener, maybe that's different. Right. And may, maybe it save, saves him time where he doesn't need to do as in depth of a film study as he would, because he has already ha, has some of that knowledge, but I think he would still want to do that. Um, and I I'll also, I, I would tend to think that Phil would know more about Notre Dame's offense than he would about right. his defense. Um, so if there's any sort of advantage, it could be him telling Notre, the Boston college of what, Notre Dame likes to do on offense, but then obviously that has changed as well because Tommy Reese is the offensive coordinator as opposed to Chip Long. Not that there's a, a ton of changes, but I, I do think but, there are changes and he wouldn't know. But there, yeah, I mean, there's different blocking schemes. Yeah, yeah. So I I think that Clark Lee's knowledge of Phil's weaknesses, and I, to me, I don't even know that it would necessarily be Clark Lee's knowledge. It would probably be Tommy Reese's knowledge of what yeah. – Phil Dracovic doesn't do well. Yeah. You can sort of impart that on Clark Lee. Cause I just, I'm just not sure how much, like you, as a backup, you, you go against the start. And even as a starter, you go against the starting defense in camp. But once the season starts, those opportunities don't happen that much. And you, and you're preparing for who you're playing against on the, on the, on Saturday more than like how you would play against Notre Dame's defense. Cause that's not going to do you any good unless the other team plays the same defense. But um, I'm just not sure that there's a huge advantage there that Phil Dracovic's going to know a ton about what Notre Dame wants to do. And if they were worried about that, I would imagine they would do something different to to try to confuse him. Um, next question is from Chris Buckley at Topher15. How worried should fans be about Boston College and it being a letdown game after Clemson? Also, was there any word of, from the ACC regarding the officiating crew's rather poor performance Saturday night? Um, I, I don't, I wouldn't worry too much about it being a letdown game. I think it's a difficult game because 
of where it sits between North Carolina and Clemson. And yet I think Phil being on the team actually gets the players a little bit more juiced. Not that they don't like him and they want to show him up, but I think it gets their attention, you know, and Brian Kelly in the Saturday press conference after the game mentioned Boston college more than he mentioned Clemson in his post game remarks, you know, they, they're a pretty mature team. Um, so I, I think if there's a letdown, it's going to be a physical letdown in that they had to empty the gas tank to win the Clemson game. But I don't think they mentally they're thinking, wow, Boston College, this this is like a bye week for us. And you look at the last couple of games Notre Dame's played against Boston College. They haven't it hasn't been close. Um, it was uh, 40 to seven at, on Senior Day last year, and 49 to 20 in 2017. So I think they'll take Boston College seriously. I think if there's a letdown, it's maybe, you know, they get sloppy execution because they're uh, maybe a little bit um, tired. But I I don't think they're taking the wrong mental approach. Yeah, I think the Jakovic factor eliminates most of that concern for me. This team, while there are many of Jakovic's friends on this team and they support him, um, that also means that they know what kind of talent he has. Um, and I imagine they don't want to lose to him. Um, so losing to Boston College basically essentially ruins what you did the week before. So I, I, to me, I, I don't – the letdown thing is only – to me, it, it, it almost is an excuse. Like, well, what, after you lose a game you weren't supposed to win, everyone sort of points to it as a, ah, oh, well, they just didn't – they didn't focus on on them well enough. And to me, it's just – I just don't totally buy it in a in a situation where you're playing every game with a with a national championship run on the line. Um, so I, I just I don't totally buy that, and I I, I, I think I agree with you that the the bigger concern is sort of the physical preparedness and that they're they're still sharp um, coming off of such a tough win rather than like them being focused on needing to beat Boston College. And there was a second part to the question he asked about the ACC um, officials and so forth, uh, you know, they certainly can um, write, you know, report what they think was discrepancies in the officiating. You know, I, other than them taking (laughs) replaying way too many things, the one that kind of got me was when there was a pass interference penalty against Clemson, then, Dabo barked at the official, and then they decided there wasn't a pass interference. That's kind of what I would, if I were going to go back and rewatch the game, I'd kind of want to look at that a little bit more and see what what exactly happened there. But Brian Kelly's not going to say anything because before he could, because he wasn't part of the conference. Now that he is, he's got to be a little bit more couching his comments on those kind of things. Yeah, I and the ACC hasn't sort of announced any sort of like thing that they did anything wrong because because I mean if the game came down to a play that that uh, like the Florida State game back in uh, uh, whenever Golson was playing, I think that yeah, and that w- then there would be some sort of announcement probably or there would be some explanation of a, of a call that changed the game, but. The, the official was sort of bad on both sides, I think, uh, for both Notre Dame and Clemson. And the, the reviews, like you mentioned, were, were uh, <laughs> quite, the, quite the event. But 
there hasn't been any sort of public declaration about that. Uh, Kelly did admit that they submitted some plays that they thought maybe were questionable to the ACC sort of review board that said sort of consider how they handle those things moving forward. But that's, that's as much as we know. Next question is from Thomas Newberger. Was Phil Dracovic seriously mishandled by Chip Long? I'm not asking if he would have left anyway. I'm asking about how Long treated him during his development. That's one of the reasons I asked Malik about what he was hearing from the Notre Dame players. And I figured Malik would tell the truth. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I mean, I mean, we've heard it. We've even heard it from parents of defensive players about how much they felt like things were mishandled with Chip Long. So, you know, I mean, we haven't gotten Chip's side of the story, but, you know, when I did the piece this summer for, um, for our special section on kind of what happened at Michigan and what kind of grew out of that loss, you know, Brian Kelly told me that Chip was kind of on double secret probation going into the season. Um, that there had to have been some changes made in how he was dealing with the players and they weren't made. And, and by the time they were on the bus coming back from Michigan, he was already searching out replacements that early in that season. So the answer, the short answer is yes. It, in the players' view, he was mishandled. Maybe not in chips, but in the players' view, I would say yes. Yeah, I, 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 I think it's maybe a little bit of a stretch to say it was all Chip Long's fault, um, but, I, but I can understand how he would be a tough coach to play for if you're dealing with a crisis of confidence, which certainly Phil Dracovic was. Um, he's not – Chip Long is not a guy that's necessarily building guys up with praise. Um, he wants to sort of sharpen them through tough criticism, and not everyone handles that well. And um, seeing how Phil has played – at a place like Boston College that treats him like the next coming of Matt Ryan and Doug Flutie, it, it's clear that he's a much better fit in that kind of environment. Um, so it, it just didn't work out that way. Um, could Notre Dame have sort of figured that out sooner and sort of avoided um, it ruining their chance of keeping Phil Dracovic or um, having his confidence in a better spot than it was uh, at at the end of last season. Um, Maybe they could have done that, but it just wasn't working out. And it's, it's worked out so far for, for everyone involved, I guess, except for Chip Long. Um, Next question is from Frank Sarah at Frank Sarah three. Do you think Notre Dame defensive line can handle the Boston college offensive line? Also, what does Notre Dame need to do to confuse Phil? Um. As far as handling the Boston College offensive line, uh, let, let's look at it from pass protection. And I think Notre Dame's defensive front is going to, and, and I'm including the linebackers in it, is going to be a handful for the next four teams Notre Dame plays. I think that's going to be a positive matchup for Notre Dame. Boston College is an 88th in sacks allowed, and that actually represents the best of the four remaining opponents. North Carolina is 91st, Syracuse is 115th, and Wake is 110th. Um, As far as um, what they need to do to to get Phil, 
I mean, I think just run your regular defensive pressures and study what he doesn't do well, study what their offensive line doesn't do well. It's not going to be the same game plan that they had for Clemson. It's going to be different. You know, Boston College isn't near the threat running the ball, um, even though they've had uh, good success in like two out of their last three games running the ball. And running the ball helps him in the play-action game. But I, I still think, you know, Notre Dame will put together a game plan that's going to pressure Phil. You know, I, I think that's the best way to control Phil is is to not give him time to throw. Yeah, I, I'm not really worried about the matchup for Notre Dame's defensive line. Um, and the key to confusing Phil is just pressure him and don't let him escape the pocket. Um it's interesting. Uh, Brian Kelly talked about how he, he does well when he escapes the pocket. I'm not, I think that that is true. I, I'm not really sure how much Phil has utilized that this, this year. I think he, he does at times. And then like we mentioned earlier, he holds on the ball too long sometimes too. And so um, I think Phil could probably do better for himself if he just committed to taking off and running sometimes. Um, and so Notre Dame needs to be cognizant of that, but I, I don't, I don't think that, um, Phil Dracovic's going to beat them with, with his legs necessarily. Next question is from Josh Melton at Domer Colts fan. Incredible game on Saturday. The Clemson passing offense was terrific. Spinning it forward, do you think other teams will be able to expose the Indy pass defense, or was this a product of Clemson athletes paired with a dynamic QB and a one-off? Well, again, we mentioned in an earlier question, the game plan, what, what Notre Dame was willing to give up helped Clemson's passing numbers you know had Notre Dame wanted to be a little bit more balanced defensively on first and second down you know I I don't think there would have been a record set in terms of opposing quarterbacks passing yards however Notre Dame might not have won the game in that scenario but North Carolina is going to be a handful they're sixth in the country in total offense and they have running back two really good running backs they have a really good quarterback Clemson, by comparison, is 15th in total offense, and Notre Dame is 31st. I think Wake has bursts of being really good. Had Sage Surratt stayed on their team instead of opting out, I think they'd be a little bit more dangerous. But definitely North Carolina, they don't play around on offense. They're kind of a mess on defense, but offensively, that's a good team. Yeah, yeah. This weekend, Notre Dame's gonna be more focused on Dracovic and the wide receivers than any of the Boston College running backs. Um, and so, I, I agree with you. North Carolina's offense is gonna be the challenge because it does everything well. Um, Notre Dame sort of made the choice to try to limit Travis Etienne, um, and that sort of exposed their secondary and, and put them in precarious situations from, at times. Um, and I think. Um, North Carolina could do that. I think I would imagine Notre Dame's going to have to play a more sort of balanced defense. They're not going to sort of try to take one thing away from North Carolina because they do multiple things well. Um, so I think that's probably what, what will happen there, and we'll see if Notre Dame can sort of have an answer for that. But um, I, don't, I don't know that it's necessarily a systemic issue that was identified against Clemson. Um, but we'll see if – Maybe Phil Jerkovic and Boston College can convince us otherwise. Next question is from Marie Biafore at Biafore underscore Marie. Great win to beat Clemson again. It seems red zone efficiency will need to improve significantly and that defense will need to give up a lot less chunk plays. 
what specifically do you think Notre Dame will most be working on in the next six weeks to make this possible? Well, I think Marie knows Marie's really smart about football, and I think Marie knows that they're going to have to focus on the little picture with these four teams that they have before the ACC championship. Obviously, there's some big picture things. You want the cornerback growth to continue, and you're and now that I think all of them have had COVID. I think you have a better chance of having having there be linear growth from that group. Um, and you know, some of the things that Ian Book did well, they need to replicate. You know, kind of going forward. But each of these teams is a little bit different that they play, and they need to really focus on the game plan because they have different strengths and weaknesses. And it's still about winning these four games. You know, if you win the next four games, there's a chance you will get to the playoff win or lose, and you will definitely be in the New Year six win or lose. I mean, that that's, that's for sure. Uh, so again, I think, you know, big picture, you know, obviously you're going to try to plug Lindsay back in when he's healthy and things of that nature, but um, you know, be a better with the ball security in the red zone. But I think Notre Dame is doing all the things that it needs to in terms of being a better team and improving and being better in December. Yeah. I think to pinpoint a couple things that I think could help the red zone, um, Javon McKinley needs to show up in the red zone. He has zero touchdown catches. Um, and while for everything that he's done to improve his game this season and become sort of a consistent player at the wide receiver position, they have with his size, they should be able to rely on him more in the red zone than they have been able to. And so I, I'd like to see that improved. Um, I think they could utilize the tight ends a little bit better in the, in the red zone as well. Um, so those are a couple areas that I think um, they need to – I mean, most of those improvements are – the passing game because we've seen that they've had success running the ball in the red zone. It's mostly just getting stuck in some third down situations and not being able to convert through the air um, in, in the red zone. That's really hurt Notre Dame. And and some of it adds up with the, the issues that you said with the turning the ball over sometimes. And then some of the red zone issues show up on the stat sheet because they've in the end of game. And so they haven't been pressing to score as much as they maybe normally would be in a, in a game that's already been won. Um, and then in terms of the chunk plays, I think it's, it kind of relates back to what we've been talking about with the Clemson sort of game plan. They're not going to be selling out against a star running back every game. So I think um, eliminating that threat with a, from opposing offenses will make uh, it easier to, to give up fewer chunk plays. Um, but, but the cornerbacks do need to, make, to win more one-on-one matchups. They're going to be – they're going to find themselves in, in those matchups for the rest of the season. They need to find a way to win those on a more consistent basis. Next question is from Joey at Joey Salvatore on the game winning touchdown in overtime. The Irish offensive line got a big push on Clemson's defensive line and linebackers. Do you think that that is a championship level play from our offensive line? I.e. we can do that to Alabama, Ohio state level defenses. Well, when I look at the total defensive stats nationally and the run defensive stats nationally, Clemson is the best of those three defenses statistically right now. Now, I think Alabama is skewed by the Ole Miss game where they were just, they had no answers for Lane Kiffin. 
Uh, but they have been playing much better defense. But, yeah, I, I think if Notre Dame is going to say we've got the best offensive line in the country, it should be able to stand up to those kind of defenses. You're not going to dominate those front sevens, but you ought to be able to win your share of battles with them. Uh, so I was impressed. Now, again, Clemson was missing some pieces. There were three very good run defenders that were out for Clemson. Uh, but I thought the offensive line showed up. If I were an offensive line recruit watching at home, I'd say, hmm, Jeff Quinn, I need to get to know him. Yeah, the, the offensive line certainly played at a championship level on Saturday, but I think you're right in, in, in pointing out that it was against a bit of a depleted Clemson front seven. Um, so it's not quite the same as what it could have been in a, in a normal matchup of those two teams. And maybe we'll see that at the end of the season in the ACC championship game. Um, but being able to repeat, I mean, when we're talking about winning a championship, you have to repeat that twice in a playoff against teams that are probably going to have good defensive lines. Um, so that's going to be a challenge, no matter how good the offensive line looks between now and then. Um, I have believed that they could perform like they did against Clemson. Um, but the challenge is proving it repeatedly. I don't think the offensive line did it against Pittsburgh. Um, and it didn't, it didn't cost them because their name was able to make plays down the field um, and then take advantage of a, some turnovers with some short fields um, to, to, to make that game out of control. But the offensive line did not dominate against Pittsburgh and um, lost its, its share of battles in the running game and in the passing game. Um, and so that was a, a, a evidence that it can be beat. Um, and I'm sure it was a learning moment for the offensive line as well. Um, and so – the, the, the challenge of doing it um, on a week-to-week basis doesn't necessarily change just because they've been able to do it once. Now, certainly the, the confidence that comes from having done it against Clemson is, is important as well. Next question is from Christian Bogan at C underscore Bogan 1989. Does this win change the narrative of Ian Book's career? And he chimes in with, to me it does. And what place does Ian fit in compared to other Notre Dame quarterbacks? Um, yeah, it does. But I think what Ian will be remembered for is how he plays December 19th and in the postseason, because he's got a chance to really elevate his profile in those games. And I mean, because people remember championships, I mean, Tony Rice's pass efficiency rating (laughs) wasn't very good. Yeah. But he won a championship, I mean, and he was a heck of a runner and a heck of a leader. But people, I mean, Tony Rice comes to Notre Dame and and he can just be Tony Rice for the rest of his life, <laughs> make money off of that. So um, Ian Book isn't there yet, but certainly being a big part of beating a number one team is is very special. And I think it's going to be interesting when I do my live chat on Wednesday – how people process that because I've been getting hammered with Phil Jacoba questions. Um, and it'll be interesting to see if the tone of those have changed any, uh, probably not until after Saturday. <laughs> yeah. I, I think it's tough because I think some, some people, some people were so, I think negative about Ian book that it skews how far they're willing to go 
with one big performance. And I, whether whether that's they say, well, now his career is completely saved because he won one game against Clemson. I mean, the the narrative no longer can be that he never won a big game because he did. Um, I think he has quite a bit more to do this season if we're going to put him anywhere towards the top of the top 10 quarterbacks in Notre Dame history or anything like that. Uh, his win total is going to be towards the top, but um, that won't mean as much without a national championship or top-level statistics for his era, and he doesn't have either of those unless he wins the one this year. So, I mean, he's kind of in like the Kevin McDougal category now, right? I mean, he's he's – put himself in a position to be a guy remembered forever for winning the game that, that everyone wanted him to win. Um, but if he doesn't finish out this season with a national championship, I don't think that it's going to elevate him to sort of another level um, in sort of the hierarchy of Notre Dame quarterbacks. I think he's probably put himself in position to be the best quarterback of the Brian Kelly era. Um, probably not the most talented of the Brian Kelly era, um, but to have done the most and, and been the best um, during the Brian Kelly era, I think is is something he could probably stake claim to now. Well, uh, the thing is, I mean, just off the top of your head, you're a lot younger than me, but let's let's try this experiment. Who was Notre Dame's quarterback in 1977? Uh, I don't know that off the top of my head. No. Okay, Joe Montana. Montana. That's what, I thought it was Montana, but I didn't want to be wrong. <laughs> right. In in '66, you had um, Terry Hanratty. I mean, people remember those names because they won championship. I couldn't tell you who Notre Dame's quarterback was in 1965. It might have also been Hanratty, but it might have been somebody else. I don't know. Uh, but you do remember the championship quarterbacks, and and it puts you in a different stratosphere as far as Notre Dame lore. I think, you know, Rick Meyer was a better quarterback than Tony Rice was, but Rick didn't win a championship. He was on some really good teams. Right. But, but he didn't win a championship. I think Tony Rice is re- revered and remembered more, even though Rick was drafted in the top two picks of the NFL draft, and Tony Rice was drafted to be a catcher for the California Angels by a Notre Dame fan. So, Yeah, and I, when I didn't put Joe Montana as, as my top quarterback um, <laughs> on my list when I ranked quarterbacks this summer, uh, I think uh, – People, people weren't very happy about that. And people, I, people, I, people have like sort of strong connections to like memories, and a lot of it, I think, comes back to your childhood too. You, yeah. If you, if Notre Dame was great when you were a child, um, and that is sort of what you remember when you kind of fell in love with Notre Dame, that that is going to sink into your mind. And people that are people that are younger, um, when they think of a great quarterback. Even if it's Brady Quinn didn't win a national championship, they're still going to say, "Heck, there's there couldn't have been a better quarterback than Brady Quinn." And then there's going to be older people that say, "Well, you got to respect to Johnny Lujak because of all the winning that he did and and how good they were when he played." And there weren't anyone else that compared to him. So I think it's it's really tough to compare quarterbacks. And I, I do think that Ian Book is sort of given. I, I think. Sort of his his re- record as a quarterback in potentially having the most wins of any Notre Dame quarterback was always going to be have a, sort of a footnote on it of well he never won the big game and now that can have, that that is going to be gone now it could be well he never won a national championship but that is a be- that is a much better uh, caveat to have on your record than it is to that you didn't you never won a big game. Um, next question we have is from 
Chris Fleck at Chris Fleck one. Do you feel that Notre Dame just turned the long awaited corner as a program or will that take a win in a playoff game to confirm? I think it was an incremental step. Uh, I don't, I think they have a chance to take two steps this year. And, and I wrote about this after the game uh, Saturday night, you know, Lou Holtz was 13 and eight against top five teams. Then Bob Davey won his first game against the top five team, Lou's successor. And then Davey, Willingham, Weiss, and Kelly were combined one and 18 versus the top five. So to beat one of those kind of teams, I think that is a step. Now, Lou Holtz, again, he was 0 for his first four. And then after he won his first, he beat two more top five teams that year to win the national championship. I think Notre Dame's next step at this point after winning a big game that everybody thought they would lose is to win a playoff game. They need to at least win a playoff game to get to that next level because they've been pushed off that big stage in January a lot. And so that's the next challenge. Yeah, I, I the, the one win is nice to have and to say that you did that and to get sort of the to be able to say that you beat a number one team is, is valuable. And I think it's probably going to be the, it, the way it's the biggest is in, in terms of recruiting um, Notre Dame will have to capitalize on it, but I think that is a, it's a big win for recruiting to have, have that kind of a win on your resume. Um, and I think it also helps in terms of confidence. I, I think finally getting over that hump for this team that had, had fallen short in, in a, a number of games um, that weren't as big as this one, but that were pretty big. Um, it, it really helped. Um, and, and it's something that Notre Dame can build on moving forward, even if it doesn't necessarily turn that corner this year with getting into the playoff and winning a playoff game. Because that's that's what Notre Dame has to do to sort of be considered a legit national championship contender. I mean, in my mind, they're a legit playoff contender um, almost annually, but – Rarely would I ever say that they're a national championship contender that, that yeah, they can get to the playoff, but I, I don't know that I would ever pick them to win two games in a playoff to win the national championship. So in order to get to that level, they're going to have to win at least one playoff game to, to sort of feel like that um, is, and I think that's, that's sort of the next step that this, this team has to take. Uh, next question is from Carlton Butler at Carlton underscore Butler book. will move on after the season. The program is in the best shape it's been on and been in years with top coordinators, roster depth, and high expectations. For the sake of continuity going into next season, who do you foresee as the QB one for the opener? I personally can't see Buckner so soon. I'm not sure what he means for the sake of continuity, because if it's Buckner, Buckner's not here, and the other two quarterbacks on the roster aren't playing much. So I think for the sake of continuity, I guess you would beg Ian Book to come back <laughs> here. Um, as far as who I think will be the quarterback to start the year, I mean, I've really got to watch spring practice. I mean, you're turning me into a psychic rather than an analyst. And uh, I, I will say, you know, from what I've seen of Brendan Clark, I like the way that he commands the offense when he's on the field and the few times that I've seen him. You know, Drew Pine, I really haven't seen much. Uh, I think he's awful small. Um, and I think Brendan Clark probably has a leg up just on experience and size. We had Tyler Buckner on the pot of gold 
Um, and we also have Rick Meyer on the pot of gold. And Rick Meyer, I think I would take his opinion that he believes Tyler Buckner could play as a true freshman for Notre Dame. And having interviewed Tyler Buckner, certainly mentally and maturity standpoint, he's pretty well put together. So I'm gonna I'm gonna say Clark or Buckner and ask me again after spring practice. Yeah, it's I, I feel so uninformed when it comes to this right now, just have, having seen so little of the backups in, in Notre Dame practices because of the current conditions. And even with Tyler Buckner, he's not even playing a senior season. So he's going to come into Notre Dame and uh, haven't played, haven't, hasn't played since his junior season at high school. So it's just, it's just so hard to sort of get a, get a real true feel of what's going on. And it's not something I've been concerned about in terms of asking around during the season of, Hey, who's going to be the starter next year? Who's got the, who's going to win that job out? So I, I'd still lean towards Brendan Clark just based off of, his positioning in the program and his experience in the program. And um, I, I don't, I don't think Tyler Buckner is a DJ Uyangalale level prospect. Um, while he is very good, I just don't know that he's, he's not, I don't, I don't know that. Um, I think he's a Brady Quinn level prospect. Sure. Yeah. I think that that, that could be fair. Um, it's just, I, I, it just really bumps me up that we didn't get to see him play as a senior. And I wanted to yeah. see what, an increase in competition and, and how he sort of handled that um, and with have, being a pretty marked man at this point in terms of what he is as a player. So um, I, I just, it's just, I, the best, the best answer is we have no idea. <laughs> I, I, I don't think that we really know. Uh, next question is from Andrew Dre Belbus at a drew D the red zone scoring percentage, specifically touchdowns, is down 15% this year, obviously because there's no go-to wide receiver down there. But why do you think we've still been able to win every game in spite of that? Last year's numbers were off the chart good. Is the answer this year's strength of schedule? I think red zone offense is an important statistic to a, to a certain point. You can have one bad game and it kind of throw off your season – Average, you know, when you look at who's at the top of the list of red zone offense right now, it's all the teams that have only played one game. So I looked at who was in the top 10 last year, and it was Kansas State was number one, LSU two, Navy three, Iowa four, Purdue, Georgia, Virginia Tech, Iowa, TCU, Notre Dame. So you kind of had a mix of, oh, yeah, LSU, and then some other teams where you go, huh? And you look at the other playoff teams, you know, Clemson was 40th in red zone offense. Ohio State was 30th. Oklahoma was 13th. But if you're a team like Notre Dame and you're having to match up with uh, Clemson and Alabama and Ohio State, I mean, you're trying to, you're trying to give yourself a better margin of error, and, and that's one area that you can. So what can they do to – get better in it. I think Tyler highlighted a little bit earlier question about getting more mileage out of Javon McKinley in the, in the red zone um, using the tight ends more. And again, they've had some, um, some fumbles in the red zone. You know, Kyron Williams had the uh, fumble near the goal line that went for a touchdown the other way against Georgia tech book fumbled, you know, lunging towards the end zone the other night. So and missed field goals count in that too, although there, I think maybe there's only been one 
maybe even not a red zone miss in there, but those get calculated in there too. Yeah, and like the like I mentioned, the sort of end of game drives that um, you right. like against Louisville that end of the at the end of the game got to the red zone, so that counts against you. Um, Georgia Tech too. Uh, yeah, and then even against um, yeah. Florida, Florida State too. They had a, a, a drive down there. So the when you don't have, I mean, when you're obviously as the season goes on, the sample size will get bigger. So those won't be as as significant to the the percentage. But um, I think that's playing a role in it. But the answer to why that they're able to sort of win every game despite of that is the defense. The defense isn't is. Is keeping the scoring down so Notre Dame can get away with having to settle for field goals. And I also think that probably plays a role in, in some of the aggressiveness that Notre Dame has on offense that maybe Ian Book isn't going to try and squeeze a ball in a tight window in the red zone because he knows, hey, we'll take three points and our defense will be fine with that. Um, so I think that that plays a role as well. And then maybe even Tommy Reese's play calling can be conservative at times because of that. They know what they have in their defense and they don't have to score a touchdown every time they get to the red zone. Um so I think that all those things are kind of combining together, and um, it's certainly something that Notre Dame needs to improve on, and, and Brian Kelly is the first to admit that. But um, I think that there are reasons that Notre Dame can, can still be not one of the best red zone teams in the country and be able to survive without that. Uh, next question, a recruiting question, rec- recruiting question from at Berkshire Yank. Chances of Notre Dame getting a visit from Arch Manning. Um, I will say a you got any lines of the Manning family. I'll say a three percent chance. <laughs> yeah, probably stay south. He's he lives in New Orleans or New Orleans area. Yeah, and that's not exactly a hotbed of Notre Dame recruiting. Um, if they're he's a twenty twenty three quarterback, so Notre Dame. I don't know. I think they've offered maybe a couple quarterbacks in that class. If or maybe that's the twenty twenty two class. We're the wrong people to ask. We should be asking Carter Carls, but. If there's ever a quarterback destined to stick in the SEC, you would you would think it would be someone like Arch Manning. So, um, but kids from prominent families do tend to have interest in Notre Dame because their parents sort of recognize the value of it. So maybe that can get Notre Dame or get him interested in Notre Dame if Notre Dame expresses interest through Tommy Reese. But I, I don't really know that how much Notre Dame has kicked the tires on Arch Manning yet. Um, we will have to sort of wait and see on that. Next one is from Sodak Irish fan. Are Kyron Williams and Tommy Tremble the best blocking running back and tight end in Notre Dame history? No, <laughs> but they're re- but they're very good and they're getting better. I mean, certainly Kyron Williams was super valuable as a blitz pickup guy, and, and, and I I got to give Lance Taylor some credit with that. I mean, we kept hearing about young running backs like Dexter Williams couldn't get on the field because of the blitz pickup. And it wasn't hard for him to train Kyron Williams to do that. Um, and, and I give Kyron credit in, in doing it too. And Tommy Trembles, <laughs> fun guy. I mean, he's, he's, he's a, in his own way, he's kind of like Quentin Nelson-ish in that I'll watch him block. I'll watch like a, a gif of him blocking and smile. You know, I, it's worth it to me. Usually – you think of blocking and it's kind of boring, but the way Tommy Tremble does it, it's very entertaining. But I mean, you think about all the all Americans that have played at Notre Dame over the years and there's just, I'm not going to elevate those guys to the best ever. I'm sorry. 
Yeah, it seems a little extreme. I, I, there, I would maybe venture to say that they're probably as willing of blockers as any anyone any other running backs and tight ends in our history because they they absolutely embrace it and they they uh, that's part of why they're good at it. Um, I mean, even last Tony Jones Jr. was a pretty dang good pass pro running back, um, but people didn't care about that as much because he wasn't as explosive on top of that. So when we would, when I would tell you that Tony Jones Jr. was a good a good in pass pro, you're like, well, yeah, I don't really care about it. But when Kyron Williams is good at it because he does good things uh, and exciting things on top of that, people really want to glom onto that. So um, Tommy Tremble is a really good blocker in space as a tight end, and I think that is valuable. And I, I imagine they're just because of the way the game has been played, there haven't been as many tight ends asked to do that um, in the history of Notre Dame football, um, just because of the spread offense that they're in. Um, So he's really good at that, but um, I I don't know that we can throw around best ever um, with either of those guys right now. The last question we have is from at PSOLI226. Can we all officially agree that Kyron Williams' nickname is Belly Man? The dude is channeling that bare stomach energy into just destroying the competition and I can't think of a better nickname for him. Let's make it happen. Well, I won't stop him from calling him Belly Man. I don't know that I'm going to jump on that bandwagon, uh, but I don't have a creative alternative. Tyler's probably given this more thought than I have, so I'm going to defer to Tyler on the nickname thing. I, I don't. I don't have any nicknames for him. Um, I haven't spent much time thinking about it. I. To me, Bellyman is a nickname for someone that has the physique that I have, so I, I don't know that Kyron Williams should be uh, uh, having the nickname Bellyman. Um, and my fear is that if you suggest that that should be his nickname to Kyron, he'll give you the look that they gave the person who called him Kyrie in the per- I thought exactly the same thing. <laughs> press conference on Saturday. Um, and also, I think it's, it's, it's a little – my understanding, and I, I don't know if he's talked about this or if this is an assumption on my part – is that I think he's he he rolls up the the his jersey like that is sort of an homage to Zeke Elliott who is from the St. Louis area and and sort of became famous for that. So I think it'd be kind of strange to give Kyron Williams a nickname based off of doing something that someone else did, and that's why he's doing it. So I know we're getting a little too in the weeds in terms of nicknames here, but I, I'm not on the belly man train. I'm certainly more power to you if you if you if you want to do it, but. A lot of times the nickname doesn't, doesn't really stick unless the, the player sort of embraces it themselves. And um, I, I guess Billy Man may be, may be better than Baby Gronk. I, I don't hate that as much as I hate Baby Gronk, but um, I, I think um, nicknames just uh, – they sort of kind of come – I think they're best when they come out of somewhere where, like, where their friends call them that or stuff like that. Right. Like Jeremiah Usukoromoa is woo because that's what everyone on the team calls him is woo. Um, and so I don't think that we're going to be able to come up with a better nickname than what, what people that know him well and, and like to call him. Easier to fit in the headlines. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, we're not going to – I don't uh, – I can pretty much guarantee we're not going to have Belly Man in a headline uh, in the future for uh, a South Bend Tribune story, but maybe we'll get a woo in there every once in a while. All right, that's it for this episode of Pot of Gold. If you don't already, you can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. We're hoping to hit 200 ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts. So if you listen to us over there and you haven't already, go ahead and drop us a line. Tom Noy and Carter Carls will be back on Sunday with a recap of Saturday's Notre Dame-Boston College game. Stick with NDInsider.com throughout the week for all your pregame and postgame coverage needs.